All right, I'd like you to take your left hand and stick it out like this. Take your left hand and hold that out like this. We're going to clap together in a rhythm of, uh, I guess it's 6, 8, or 3, 4, depending on how you count it. Remember, you're going to uh, clap the person's hand to your, your right, their left hand, your right leg, your left leg, up on your hand, and down twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Very good. There we go. That's good. Here we go. I'll say it again. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg. Are right, we ready? Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. There is only one God, there is only one King, there is only one body, that is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. Excellent. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 16. That's the happiest moment you're going to have for the next 40. So... Because we're in Ecclesiastes, and it's going to be bad. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. While you're turning there, two notes. One, uh, if you see Pastor Scott on Tuesday, or you could text him or Facebook him or email him, thank him on Tuesday for completing his eighth year of ministry at Grace. So he started his ministry eight years ago in 2011 on October 1st, and uh, we're grateful to God for him. The second thing I'll mention, uh, Fred already did talk about the uh, conference that the elders went to about prayer. It was a wonderful weekend. We learned a new song, which I imagine we'll be learning in our church in a little bit. While they were teaching the song to us, the the leader said, does anybody have any questions about this song? And some pastor, God bless him, I don't know what he was thinking, raised his hand and said, now how would you go about teaching this to your church? And I thought to myself, dude, do you not teach your church to sing new songs? Like, it's just a new concept to you that we would learn a new song in our church. I don't even know how. I don't know how to teach my church a new song. That's what I thought. And then I thought how grateful I am for our worship team, uh, our worship teams, and their willingness to learn and teach us new music. There are, uh, because God is infinite, there is an infinite number of wonderful songs that can be written extolling his praises. And uh, we try to learn new songs, good new songs, and I'm grateful for our worship team that uh, teaches them to us. Now, God's word, Ecclesiastes 3:16. Follow along as I read. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. 
Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust. All return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who are already dead are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. Chasing after the wind. Fools fall their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. I have a book recommendation for you this morning. It will be one of the most interesting reads that you have in a long time. It's called Better Never to Have Been Born, The Harm of Coming into Existence. It was written by David Benatar. David Benatar is a philosophy professor at the University of uh, Cape Town in South Africa. It was published, this book, in 2008 by Oxford University Press. Uh, David Benatar is, uh, well, he argues in this book that coming into existence, being born, is always a serious harm. And in order to reduce pain in the world, it is urgent that humans stop reproducing. Uh, You should not have any more babies. In fact, it is immoral, he says, to bring someone into existence against their will. Which, if you think about it, is how everyone is brought into existence. Uh, Earlier this year, an Indian businessman, his name is Raphael Samuel, announced his plans to sue his parents for giving birth to him without his consent. Uh, Well, this book, Better Never to Have Been Born, is part of the antinatalist or anti-birth movement. Benatar argues human beings are morally obligated to stop reproducing. In fact, he goes so far as to say, this will repulse you, that women are morally obligated to abort any children that they are carrying at the earliest stages of gestation. Now, he makes his case by arguing how painful life is. Life, he says, human beings are centers of suffering. You might not realize that he says evolution has programmed us to be optimistic. We are programmed by evolution to think positively about what is to come in the future. But in reality, life is nothing but pain. Most people, he says, spend a large part of their lives lonely, sad, hungry, thirsty, tired, depressed, anxious, nervous, embarrassed, or in physical or emotional trauma. Here are some statistics he cites in his book. There are currently 7 billion people on the planet. That number is expected to increase in the coming decades. Over the past 1,000 years, 150 million people are estimated to have died in natural disasters. 
20,000 people in the world die from starvation uh, every day. The 1918 influenza epidemic killed 50 million people. HIV kills 3 million people annually. 3.5 million people die each year in accidents. Wars have killed hundreds of millions of people. And when you put the numbers together for 2001, the statistics are old, the facts are still true, 56.5 million people died in 2001, which which means that for every minute, 107 people around the world die. The only thing that life guarantees you, in fact, is that you are going to die. Benatar warns us, he says, don't think that pleasure... In life, some of you are thinking, "Yeah, but I mean, life is happy. There are moments of pleasure." He said, "They don't. That doesn't count. It's not enough. The amount of pleasure that you experience in your life is not significant enough to balance the amount of pain in your life." Think about it this way: Do you know someone who has been diagnosed with chronic pain? I know people who have been diagnosed with chronic pain. Do you know anybody who has been diagnosed with chronic pleasure? No one. I'm sorry, Mr. Divini, but the feelings of euphoria that you have, that tingly goodness all over your body, I can't cure it. I don't know what's wrong. You're just going to have this chronic pleasure. It's going to distract you from doing all the important things in life. It's going to be really hard to manage. You're just going to have to learn to put up with all the joy. I'm really sorry. No doctor's ever said that to any patient. Now, let, let's sniff around this book a little bit, the arguments around it. I, I know you haven't read it, but I, I told you basically what he... He says, what's wrong with it? On the one hand, you might recognize that it's completely godless. Not godless in the sense of evil, although aborting uh, babies is evil. um, But godless in the sense of there's no God at all in David Benatar's worldview. He has no place for a God who called human beings into existence and made us in his image. And no place for a God who tells us to... um, be fruitful and multiply. No God who revealed himself in his word. There's, this book is godless. He's a non-entity in this worldview. But something else that might strike you about this book as I was describing it is how similar that book is to what we just read in the book of Ecclesiastes. Better than the living and the dead are those who have never been born because they don't have to live with the evil that is under the sun. So what do we do about that? We've been working through this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes for about a month. It's an unusual text. Just think about the juxtaposition between what we read this morning from Psalm 128 about the fruitfulness and the blessedness of life. And may God bless you and make you happy and, and, and multiply your family and then Ecclesiastes is better never have been born. It's an unusual book. The author, the teacher, he wants you to live a purposeful, meaningful, satisfied life. But he goes about it a strange way. He's, he's negative, he's cynical, he's pessimistic, he's bleak. He's very pessimistic about the ways that we human beings try to build meaningful lives under, for ourselves under the sun. That is, in the world without God, if you discount God, um, we human beings try to make a good life. And, and the teacher says, that does not work. It does not work. And... In this broken world that we live in, this world that has been turned upside down by our own sin, what God does 
often appears to us as mysterious and troubling and confusing. If you think about it, life often feels like driving through fog. You're surrounded by gray. The scenery is not very good. You see a little bit ahead, but not much. And there's just a lot of questions. Just a lot of questions. At the end of chapter 3, uh, did you notice here the teacher repeats the advice that he gives six or seven times in his book? There's nothing better for a person to do than enjoy their work. Enjoy their work. Uh, find joy in the small daily moments that God gives. Eating, drinking, working. Working is actually the focus here, working. We've already seen that advice for a few times, uh, but you might have a question about it. Does the teacher really know how difficult what he's telling us to do is? Does he really know how bad it is out there and how hard this is to do? There's so much suffering, so much sorrow in the world. It's distracting. It's almost as if the teacher is coming along and saying, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a beautiful flute solo and I want you to listen to it and really enjoy this music. Sorry, there's a fire alarm going off at the same time, but just can you, can you tune in on the, f- the flute that's playing? You know how hard it is to listen to music with a fire alarm going off? Um, the answer, of course, does the teacher know how bad it really is? The answer, of course, is yes, and that's one of the functions of this passage. This morning, I want to walk you through this passage, and I want you to see here four realities that the teacher writes about, four conditions that make enjoying work, that receiving it from, as a gift from God such a challenge. He knows, the teacher knows what he's asking us to do. Um, and he describes some of these terrible conditions in the life in the world in which we live. I'm anxious to show you this because I want you to know that when the Bible, when God commands us to do something in the Bible, when Paul writes it or Jesus spoke it or the apostles say it, they give us this command. They're not giving it to us with the idea that this is going to be so easy, that this is just a, a, a simple thing. There's, there, there's no obstacles, no troubles. Here's a command. I don't know why you would even find this hard. That, that is not the attitude that the Bible takes at all. The Bible speaks into a world that it knows. God speaks into a world that he knows is broken. And he knows the challenges that we face in in taking up these commands. So let's look at these conditions in which we live. There's four of them. Here's the first one. Number one, injustice. Injustice. That's the focus of verse 16 of chapter 3 where he says... I saw something wicked under the sun. I saw something in, under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness. In the place of justice, wickedness. The world is filled with injustice. Twice in the text he t- refers to the place. And he's thinking of the specific place in the culture where justice is supposed to take place. In, in the teacher's day, it would have been in a town between the city gates. That's where the elders would have sat to uh, conduct justice. That's where they would have trials and hearings. That was court. We could say in our culture, in the courthouse. In the courthouse, there's no justice. The teacher says, that's supposed to be a place of justice, but it's actually just wickedness. We followers of Jesus are of two minds when it comes to justice and the government. On the one hand, we believe what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. God established the government in part to provide for and enact justice. It's what we want our court system to do. We want it to vindicate the innocent. We want it to uh, defend the defenseless. We want it to punish the guilty. 
That's always our hope. It's always God's intention. And frankly, the farther you are away from that system, the more confidence you will have that it works that way. The teacher's pretty honest here. If you get up close, it's not that pretty. For example, spend a moment or two talking with uh, the members of our church who've been involved in the foster care system and the proceedings of the family court. Ask them, is that a shining example of wise justice? They'll tell you, they will tell you that they have met lawyers and social workers and judges in the system who are committed to doing good work and who make tremendous sacrifices for children. But those same civil servants are often stymied by a legal system that is slow and broken and that favors parents over the welfare of children. And there's injustice that takes place. Or here's another example. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, announced on Tuesday that there will now begin an official impeachment inquiry in the House. Let's take a poll. Don't raise your hand. Let's take a poll. How many of you believe that the impeachment inquiry will be a model of justice? That when it's over, uh, we are going to bask together in the wisdom and the restraint and the fairness and the humility of the members of the legislative branch and the executive branch. You know what's going to happen, regardless of the outcome, when it's over, the president's supporters are going to say uh, that he was ruthlessly attacked for no good reason, and, and his critics will say that he got off scot-free with a lot. That's what everybody's going to be saying. No one's going to be happy with that process. In the place of justice, there's wickedness. Does that discourage you from doing your work in this world? Think especially about our fellow believers who are directly involved in the justice system, the lawyers and police officers and judges and probation officers and social workers and court clerks who are followers of Jesus. How do you enjoy your work in the midst of that? How do you receive from work, your work from God the toil that you do as a good gift from Him? Ooh. Now, verse 17 Verse 16 is honest about the troubles. My fear today is that I'm going to talk about the troubles and then I'm going to spend some time talking about the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. My, My fear today is that I'm not going to spend enough time in the troubles. But we'll move on to the hope in verse 17 because the teacher, at least in this passage, has a little bit. He says in verse 17, major theme of Scripture, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. God's going to enact justice. It's a faith-filled answer he has. There is injustice in this world, but God's going to fix it. Notice the time aspect here. He says in verse 17, there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Remember we just read in earlier in chapter 3, there's a time to be born and a time to die and a time to weep and a time to laugh. And now he says there's a time for justice and God will see that it takes place. God will ensure it is so. This is our great hope as followers of Jesus. He's echoing what David wrote in Psalm 12. I read Psalm 12 as part of my normal scripture reading from the Bible. Uh, Actually, Psalm 11, that's what I want to quote. I did read Psalm 12 too, but today I want to read Psalm 11. Verse 4, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, He hates with a passion. 
(laughs) Next time somebody says to you, God loves the sinner and hates the sin, you say, that's half true, kind of. And then you read Psalm 11.4 that says, those who love violence, God hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. God is both fully aware of the condition of the world and he promises multiple times in the scriptures that he's going to fix it. He knows what he's about when he asks us to receive work from him uh, as as a gift in an unjust world. And what's interesting here is that the teacher does not talk about the specific time that God's going to bring this justice about. Um, when will God intervene? The Hebrew text has an extra word, an extra word there in this passage. It's not an extra word. It's just that the English translations don't really know how to deal with it. They have a word there. So if I were going to put that in, it might say something like this. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity there. A time to judge every deed there. He's thinking of some place, some time, when God will bring justice in that place of judgment. In our place of justice, there's wickedness, but in God's place of justice, there is not now, from the New Testament perspective, we anticipate that the bulk of this justice will be on display when the Lord Jesus himself returns. The teacher is not as specific about that. What, what he knows is that God is going to bring justice to bear. I wonder if that's enough to sustain you. To enable you to enjoy your work in the midst of an unjust world. Here's, here's my little corner of the world. Here's the portion over which I have power here. There's so many things in the world that I can't fix that I don't have power over. And if you watch enough cable news, you're supposed to panic about it all the time, every day. There's so much injustice, but here I've got this slice that God has given to me today. Is, is it enough to know that God will take care of that and, and you can receive this from him today? Um, on Wednesday morning, I, I went outside with... Uh, to wait for Luke to get on the bus. We sat on the board porch, the bus came, Luke went away, and, and, I, and I went back in the house, and the dog, our 75-pound Bernese mountain dog, Stella, uh, ran down the stairs when I came back in the house. Stella is not generally allowed upstairs. There's only two major crazy times under which Stella is allowed upstairs, fireworks and thunderstorms, you know, major threats to her survival. So um, that's the only time she's allowed upstairs, and she goes most often into Jenna's room, and with Jenna there, she feels safer. She came down the stairs Wednesday morning. I said, what were you doing upstairs? She didn't answer me. um, (laughs) But then I I heard the dreaded sound, and I knew why she was upstairs. The dreaded sound, the beep of a smoke alarm somewhere in my house with a low battery. I hate that sound. Every 30 seconds, that sound, Stella hates it too. She stood on the stairs looking at me, and she was shaking. She was shaking. You could see through her 93 pounds of fur. You could see her shaking. Poor dog. So I started to walk around to see if I could see the source of the sound. 
usually the beeping starts between 2 and 3 a.m. in the morning. I was happy. It was daytime. Um, so I was walking around, and I hate having to find which one is it. So you walk in a room, and, oh, no, it's not here. So you walk in another room, you had to wait under the, oh, no, it's not that one. And you go to another room, and then you go downstairs, and you, oh, no, it was upstairs. And I, and, and, uh, well, eventually, I just got so frustrated, decided I'm replacing them all. I don't care. All the batteries. And I didn't have enough. So I ran to the store. I came back. I replaced all of the smoke detectors in all uh, the batteries in all of the smoke detectors, only to discover when I was finished that it was actually the carbon monoxide detector battery that was low. <laughs> I didn't know that they beep when their battery is low. How did I not know that? Now... I wonder if you have more faith than my dog. Would would this have worked? Would this work with your dog? So I get down in front of Stella and I say, Now, Stella, I love you. You know that I love you, Stella. I, I feed you. I walk you. I pet you. I take you to the vet. I give you opportunities to do your favorite thing in the whole world, namely ride in the car. When 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 we have food and there's grisly meat over the objections of my wife, I sneak it to you, Stella. You know, you know that I love you, Stella. I promise you that this, this beeping is annoying, but it's not going to hurt you. I have a lot to do, Stella, today, but when the day is over, I'll come back and I will fix the sound. Can you stop shaking until then? Do you think that would have worked? Would Stella have been inspired by my speech? Would she have said, oh, yes, yes, I, I trust your wisdom and your knowledge. You are clearly superior to me in all ways. And yes, yes, I trust you. I will rest calm. That would not have worked. In fact, the poor dog had to leave the house to go get the batteries and come back. I abandoned her at her, her moment of need. Do you have more faith in my dog? Because God says to you, now, child... I love you. You know that I love you. I am fully aware of the injustice in the world. And I will take care of it. You will survive. Listen to what I'm telling you to do right now. Do you have more faith than my dog? Part of the problem is, part of the problem has to do with the way that God responds to justice now. It's, it's mysterious, it's slow, it's not the way we would want it. And the teacher's honest about that, and he even tells us that, that God's, in, uh, God's uh, justice unfolds the way it does, slowly and mysteriously, in order to teach us something about ourselves. Let me show you that transition in the text uh, but for purposes of our progress and time, our time together, we're going to move on here from step one to step two. Reality number one is injustice. Reality number two is death. Death. What else makes your work hard? Uh, enjoying your work hard? The reality of death. Death is coming for us all. L- let's look at the text here. So verse 17 God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Verse 18, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them. God does this, the Hebrew says, God does this, the way he, the way he brings into judgment, he does this so that they, human beings, may see that they are like the animals. This is a bleak set of verses. 
Um, he's not denying here that humans are made in God's image and animals are not. He, he's not denying that. There is something that animals and humans all have in common. We're all going to die. Here's your weekly reminder from the teacher. You are going to die. Throughout your lifetime, you have buried pets. You have slaughtered hundreds, if not thousands, of animals for food or caused them to be slaughtered. But you are just like them in that you are going to die. Chances are high you won't be put in a shoebox in the backyard, but you are going to die. God's dealing with us in the realm of justice is a reminder of this reality, a reminder of death. Verse 20 of this passage is is an allusion to Genesis 3. So after Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, he told them what would happen. Uh, He said in Genesis 3, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is a hard truth in Ecclesiastes 3. Think about it for a minute. Are you and I more like God or are we more like animals? Based on how we treat one another, so much injustice. Based on how we treat one another and based on our experience of death, we're more like animals than like God. If you, if, you take out, if you take out Genesis 1 and God calling us into his image and God giving us commands and God giving us his... If you, if you think only under the sun, we are a lot more like animals than we are like God. That makes putting in a hard day's work hard. Verse 21, this is strange. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth... What's he saying? Is the teacher denying any sort of afterlife here? There are several ways to approach this verse. On the one hand, you could say to the teacher, who knows? Who knows? You do, teacher, because in chapter 12, verse 7, we'll read that in a few weeks. Chapter 12, verse 7, you talk about the animals and and, and spirits of human beings ascending to heaven. You, you, You know there's a difference, teacher. I think that what's happening here is the teacher is so discouraged by the injustice of the world and and death that is ever present. He's giving full vent to his frustrations. We're all going to die. Does anything matter at all? We're all going to die. Everything that you think is important, so much of what you think is important to your life is going to be taken from you. You're going to die. And within 75 years, you're going to be forgotten. Even by the people who know you, who love you the most. They're not going to remember your name. Now, be honest, do you have a worldview that can deal with that reality? That can help you get up tomorrow morning and go to work in light of this reality? Does what you believe, will it help you process this, move forward with this? This is not how, let's be honest, this is not how the New Testament teaches us to think about resurrection. And what happens after we die? There's a difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not a difference, there's a development between what happens in the Old Testament, the teaching of the Old Testament, and the teaching of the New Testament. More details come in the New Testament as the New Testament unfolds, more specifics. We know now, Paul wrote about it, to be absent from the body, if you're a follower of Jesus, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. When you die, your body goes into the ground, your spirit, the immaterial part of you, with God's presence. 
If you are an unbeliever, after death, the body goes into the ground. Your spirit goes to a place of conscious torment. Someday there's going to be a place, a time of resurrection. Believers in a new body with new life for eternity to go, with God. Unbelievers in eternal wrath. Those are New Testament details. And our resurrection hope in the New Testament drives us, it moves us forward. Well, the Old Testament picture is not that specific. There's a reference in Daniel to the righteous being with God and the unrighteous being punished. There's a reference there. But, but the, the Old Testament's not nearly as, as detailed. In the Old Testament, believers and unbelievers, they all die and they all go into the ground, Sheol, the grave, and what happens there is clouded in mystery. Only God knows, the teacher is saying, only God knows if there's distinctions for the righteous and the unrighteous, for animals and humans. The teacher is expressing some of this mystery. But, but he's also telling us here, I'm going to borrow a misunderstood phrase. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Death is inevitable. You have a limited amount of time on earth to do what you're going to do. Rather than letting that discourage you into inaction, instead you should receive all that is possible from today's work. All the joy that is possible from today's work. Tomorrow when you go to work, take from it every moment of joy that you can because you don't know if you'll go to work on Tuesday. There's injustice around you. There's death ahead of you. But here's your lot now. Do today's tasks now. Receive them as a gift now. Now let's move on here. Reality number three. Reality number three. We're learning from this text that when the teacher tells us that part of living a satisfied life means receiving each day's small gifts from God, he's, he's, not, he's not speaking from a place of ignorance. He knows exactly how bad the conditions are. He knows about injustice. He knows about death. And third, he knows about oppression. He knows about oppression. Look how he writes in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I looked and saw the, all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. They have no comforter. Oppression, oppression, oppression everywhere. And, and no one to comfort them. This week there was a story in the Lancaster newspaper, maybe you saw it, about a couple that was convicted of a crime uh, of abuse of a child that happened last weekend, I, uh, sorry, last April, a year ago, April 2018, one weekend. You, you know that this terrible situation lasted more than a weekend, but the trial was about what happened in this weekend. There was a man, and he had an 11-year-old daughter and his wife, the, the girl's stepmother, they took her into their home. It was probably his custody weekend for the weekend, and they spent 48 hours abusing this child. And so they deprived her of food and sleep and the opportunities of the bathroom. She, when she would uh, urinate on herself through her clothes, they collected the urine and then dumped it on her head. They beat her so much uh, that she couldn't remember all of the beatings that she had received. It's a horrible, terrible weekend and they were convicted for this crime, they'll be sentenced in a couple of months. The teacher knows stories like this. A lot of stories like this. Oppression and no comfort. No comfort. 
Do you know that more U.S. soldiers have committed suicide since 2008 than were killed during the entire Vietnam War? So if you were killed in the Vietnam War, terrible tragedy, there's this black wall in Washington, D.C., and your name is carved there. If you're a soldier who comes home from a war and, and you find no solace, um, can't find the help that you need, and you take your life, there's no place for your name to be carved. Is the teacher is 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 what the teacher writing about here more common or uncommon? Which is more prevalent in the world, oppression or kindness? You might be inclined to think kindness. That may be because of your experiences of living in. Well, we live in the United States. And it's far from a perfect country, but for hundreds of years, people have come here to find kindness and escape the oppressions of where they were. Or maybe, maybe you'd say kindness because of your experience as a follower of Jesus. See, comforting one another is one of the things that we do. Huh. Jesus said it would be one of our defining characteristics. We weep with those who weep. One of our hopes as a congregation is that there will always be someone to share your tears. Can you consider, though, that one of the reasons that maybe Jesus told us to weep with one another is because it's so highly unusual in the world that this is the way it is? I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. That sort of comfort is, is what God repeatedly offered to his people. Isaiah chapter 40, that wonderful passage. What should the prophet say? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this is the life under the sun. Oppression and no comfort. Now, we as followers of Jesus believe that God has come from above the sun into the world. He speaks to us very truthfully about our condition and why things are so bad. Refusing to follow him was a grave error. We have made ourselves his enemies, but the good news is that God loves his enemies. And when the Lord Jesus came, the scriptures tells us, tell us that he was a man of suffering familiar with pain and sorrow. How many times in the Gospels, how many times in the Gospels does the Lord Jesus himself come along some weeping soul? A man who's just desperate because his daughter is sick or a sister who's grieving because her brother has died or a societal outcast who's just alone and Jesus comes and he touches and he heals and he speaks kind words. Do you remember hearing the stories in the 90s about uh, orphanages overseas? Romania was the country that everybody talked about. Romanian orphanages. You walk into a, a Romanian orphanage and it was silent, filled with children. You'd go into a room that would have 40 cribs in it and there'd be eight babies in all of those cribs and they would be silent. And the reason it would be silent is because those babies had learned that there's no point in crying because no one is coming. No one's going to help you. Don't begrudge. Huh. Don't begrudge 
when you walk down the hall in our church and you hear a crying child in the nursery? The good news of that crying baby, babies are selfish little monsters. But the good news of that crying baby is they expect that somebody's coming. Right? They, 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 they believe somebody's going to hear and come. What does the Lord Jesus do? How, how would he respond if the Lord Jesus walks into a Romanian orphanage? He is very angry with the government that allows that to happen. He is very angry with the men who have abandoned uh, women and children to this situation. He is very angry and he is very gentle with the mothers who have had to leave their children there against their will. And he is very tender with those babies. There's oppression and no comfort. But we say, oh, the Lord Jesus, he has come. He has come. Brothers and sisters, remember that when we reach out to hurting people, we are merely mimicking the Lord Jesus himself. And when we fail, we're going to fail. We inevitably do that. We, we don't. We don't comfort people like we aspire to and like the Lord Jesus commanded us to. We fail at this. He never does. He never does. Remember, before his death and resurrection, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you as orphans. He bore our sorrows and our griefs and our pain. He bore them all the way to Calvary, as the song goes that we sing. We suffer in this world because of what has been done to us. There is oppression. We suffer in this world also because of what we have done. You are your own worst oppressor. And here's the grand way that God brings justice. He pays the due penalty for our sin himself. This is what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. He died bearing the just sentence of a holy God against sinners. He was not a sinner, but he died a sinner's death, bearing God's wrath. And so he brings comfort and help and hope to all who return, turn to him and receive him by faith. Friend, I wonder how closely your life comports with what the teacher is saying here. Injustice, oppression, death. At the center of our church's life is this call that we issue to anyone who will listen. There is comfort to be found in Jesus alone and through Jesus. For his sake, we issue this call to you to turn to him and call upon him and trust him. It will not end all oppression in this life and all suffering and sorrow that you experience now. We're waiting for that day. But he does not leave his people comfortless. Now, there's one more condition to consider in this world that we should talk about this morning. The teacher wants us to learn in the midst of all the questions we have about what God is doing and all the troubles. He wants us to learn to enjoy the work that he has given us. And, and now he's going to talk again about work. And, and, and so receive gift, work as a gift from God. But there's, a con, there's some conditions even in work that you've got to look out for. Here's the fourth one. Here's the fourth trouble. Uh, envy. Envy. Envy, verse 4, chapter 4. 
And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So let's say you get this message that you're, you're willing to, to receive from God work as a gift to seek to find the joy of it because God made us to work and, and I'll, I'll, um, there's little moments of joy. You, you succeeded in making a customer happy or you completed this task or you organized this closet. Woohoo, this is a great moment of joy. I'll receive it from God. Great. But be careful. Be careful, the teacher says, of why you're working. Most toil, he says, is motivated not by joy from God, but by envy. Oh. Envy is not a very good reason to work really hard. Uh, the teacher has already told us why. So you're envious of somebody, so you outwork them, so you can accumulate a lot of stuff, and you know what's going to happen. You're going to die in the stuff. Who knows who's going to get it? Some fool probably. Maybe your son. Right? Your cousin. Okay? All this, this work is driven by envy. You work and work and work and work in order to get more than your neighbor or your friend, toiling and toiling and toiling in order to prove yourself successful because your high school reunion is coming up and you've got to look better than those people do. And this is how I'm going to make it known that I matter. Well, that's meaningless. And the teacher says there's some alternatives to that. You could, you could be lazy and do nothing. That doesn't work very well. The, the NIV smooths this out a little bit. Verse 5 says, Fools fold their hands. Well, they, they say, Well, if work is just about envy, then I'm not going to bother. They fold their hands and ruin themselves. The text literally says they consume themselves. All you have to eat for dinner if you don't work is your own flesh. That doesn't seem like a good op option. Here's the better option. Uh, 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 another option, I suppose, we've already talked about the people driven with envy. You, you work and work and work and work and work and work and work to get more than everybody else. And what do you have? You just have, have um, trouble. But there's a better option. You, you can work. You can work hard and settle for less. Give thanks in the midst of that work that is not all-consuming. It, it's better... It's better to have one handful of supplies with tranquility than two handfuls because you toiled and labored and beat everybody else. This counsel I probably, uh, I'm giving you would probably serve you well in all kinds of areas of life. Beware of toiling away at things that don't last. Be, beware of being beaten down and driven by your diet and exercise program. How many diet and exercise programs are driven by envy? Huh. You know, eventually your body's going to waste away. That, that big muscle that you have, it's going to shrink. Or your hobbies. Who's going to value your stamp collection when you die? So why are you killing somebody to get a stamp from them? Right? Take all of the joy you can get from these things, but don't give them more devotion than they deserve. That's what he, he's saying. When I was in seminary, there was a... I worked uh, part-time at a doctor's office, and there was a woman who came into the office with her husband uh, regularly. Um, he was an older man. He was somewhere in his late 70s, maybe early 80s, and he looked like it. Um, he dressed like an older man. He had the wrinkles and the gray hair and the stooping posture. 
his wife, they would come in together, and she, though, clearly had had a lot of work done on her body. A lot of facelifts, liposuction, nose jobs, uh, reshaping her body. She dressed like she was 16. If you were standing 75 yards away from her and you squinted, you would see an old man and a 30-year-old woman coming down the street. But when you get close, you get closer to her, you could see all the telltale signs of all the work that she'd had done on her body. She'd spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to outrun what is inevitable. Aging. It happens to all of us. We live in a broken world. You will not be able to outrun some of the broken conditions in this world. You will not be able to outrun injustice. Some of you may face it and experience it. You will not be able to outrun death. You will not be able to outrun oppression. You can't resign completely from the rat race, but you don't have to surrender to those things. You don't have to be conquered by them. You don't have to be overcome by them. You can still, in the midst of them, receive satisfaction from God under the sun. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you the relief that we have uh, that you know what happens on earth and you know how broken things are. Lord, we don't, we don't like to think about it very often. We don't like to face it. Yet you force us to injustice and oppression and death and envy. Lord, these landmines that you teach us to avoid, the, the well, the, the terrible oxygen, the, the air quality that we're, we're called to breathe in this broken world. Thank you that you, you warn us about them, you tell us about them, you teach us to endure them. I pray that according to your kindness, you would enable us this week to receive our work, our food, what we drink, quiet moments of joy as good gifts from you. Help us not to be overwhelmed by these broken things. Help us to hear the sweet music of your kindness in the midst of the fire alarms of this broken world. That's a gift of grace for us to do that. Help us. Thank you for the sweet comfort that the New Testament in particular brings. Your justice, the comfort of the Lord Jesus, victory over death. Thank you. Thank you. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. We've been singing uh, a lot of songs this morning just about, um, well, first God's trustworthiness and um, then our relationship to him in the midst of life and the difficulties that that brings. And so this last song is taken from Psalm 62, the same type of thing, um, finding uh, our rest in God and continuing to praise him in the middle of everything that life brings. So would you stand with us and we'll sing this last song together.